0: Welcome to Very Old Money, a podcast that looks at history through money. Episode 2.5, The King's Peace Quick announcement before we begin, the podcast is available on most podcatchers, including Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. And you can also subscribe to it on YouTube. The two coins listed on the cover art today are from Classical Numismatic Group, LLC. And you can view their site at www.cngcoins.com. So on with the show. When we last left Cyrus the Great in Episode 2.2, he had just taken out the second of the four powers who maintained that uneasy balance of power in the Near East. In contrast to the Neo-Assyrian Empire, Cyrus's conquests were not accompanied with fire and brimstone. He tried to co-opt the locals into his empire, gave them generous terms, and he made sure to honor the local gods. The conquest of Lydia also introduced Cyrus and the Persians to coinage, which at this point was still restricted to Western Asia Minor. The economies of the Median and Persian empires were not monetized with coins so far. Barter and proto-money like silver bars appear to have been used. But, for all the playing nice, this was still a conquest. Croesus did not go down in history and legend as one of the richest men ever without having a lot of money. He had a lot of treasure, and it was now headed off to Persia. A Lydian named Pactias was put in charge of the process of shipping Lydia's wealth east. Whether it was the wealth transfer that rankled or the fact that the new satrap of Lydia was a Persian named Tabalus, Pectius would not take the new order lying down. He waited until Cyrus had left, then he hired mercenaries and kick-started an uprising in Sardis and put Tabalus under siege. But Cyrus responded quickly. He sent another general, Mazaris, to crush the uprising. And with that, the air went out of the balloon. Paktaius fled to Ionia and hired more mercenaries. And in the long run, it is doubtful that the Ionians looked at Paktaius with much fondness, because behind him came the Persian army. Mazari subdued Magnesia and praeni and captured Paktaius, whose ultimate fate is not recorded, but given how Persians treated traitors, his fate was probably not very pleasant. Mazaris then resumed his campaign, but he died and then was replaced by Harpagus, the general who we referred to in episode 2.2, as the median general who allegedly did not kill Cyrus as a baby. Harpagus finished the job, but he left Miletus untouched for now. Miletus had smartly stayed neutral in the Lydian campaign, and by 542 BC, Asia Minor was Persian. When it came to coins, Cyrus and his immediate successors continued to strike the lion and bull coinage of Croesus, but the weight standards would modify slightly. The silver stater would retain the 10.7 weight standard adopted by Croesus and which would later be referred to as the Persian standard. However, the silver was more commonly minted at the half stater, which is a weight of about 5.35 grams. And this would become the weight standard for the later Persian siglos, which is introduced by the end of the 6th century BC. Now, the two coins in the cover art today, again from CNG, should look familiar because they continue the earlier patterns. The first is a gold stator of the Croesus type, 17.5 millimeters, 8.06 grams. So that's the same weight standard for the gold stators that Croesus had eventually established, and you have the confronted four parts of the lion and the bull on the obverse and two Q squares on the reverse. The silver coin is the new Siglos weight coin, 15 point, 15.5 millimeters and 5.36 grams. Again, in the croisset type, you have the confronted parts of the lion and bull and two incuse squares. Now, while the general style remains the same, many people refer to the earlier Lydian issues as having a more natural depiction of the lion and bull. Now, these coins would continue past Cyrus until they, would, they will be replaced by new Persian-style coins under Darius I. Cyrus was not done campaigning. He now turned his attention to the third of the fourth great powers in his last major conquest, Babylon. Nabopolassar, who ruled from 626 to 605 BC, had revived the state that is now referred to as the Neo Babylonian Empire. Babylon had been subject to Assyria, had frequently revolted, had been frequently sacked. The Assyrians, time and again, had attempted to put one of their own princes as king of Babylon, and soon the king would revolt himself. But Nabopolassar was not Assyrian, he appears to have been Chaldean and he became king in 626. And soon as the Neo-Assyrian empires started to decline in the last years of Ashurbanipal II, he entered into an alliance with the king of Media. And together, as previously discussed, they destroyed the Neo-Assyrian empire. Babylon was now free. But it is under his son, Nebuchadnezzar II, where the a long reign from 605 to 562 BC, that the Neo-Babylonian Empire reaches its highest point. Nebuchadnezzar II went to war often. He conquered Syria and Phoenicia and forced tribute from Damascus, Tyre and Sidon. Now this was a tributary state arrangement, and Nebuchadnezzar had to wage regular military campaigns to keep his vassals in line. It is Nebuchadnezzar's wars with the kingdom of Judah have earned him damnation in the Old Testament. In 597 BC, he invaded Judah, captured Jerusalem, and deposed its king. Over the next decade, he was frequently at war with Egypt, and Egypt and Babylon were continuously vying for control over the region, which encouraged King Zedekiah of Judah to make the fateful decision to revolt. And in 587, the hammer finally fell. After an 18-month siege, Jerusalem was captured. Solomon's temple was burned to the ground, and thousands of Jews were deported to Babylon, starting the so-called Babylonian captivity. By 572 BC, Nebuchadnezzar was in full control of Babylonia, Assyria, Phoenicia, Israel, Philistinia, Northern Arabia, and parts of Asia Minor. His wars with Egypt were going well, and in 568 BC, he actually invaded Egypt itself. However, the Babylonian control of Egypt was fleeting, and the Egyptians soon recovered under their Pharaoh Amasis II. On the domestic front, Nebuchadnezzar was a spectacular builder. He rebuilt most of the cities of Babylonia and Babylon itself. It is his constructions in Babylon, which as I mentioned before, had been repeatedly burned down by the Assyrians that made it the city of legend in the classical ancient age to come. Unfortunately for Babylon, this stability ended on the death of Nebuchadnezzar in 562 BC. His son lasted only two years before he was murdered by his brother-in-law. The brother-in-law showed ability, but died four years later, leaving the throne to his underage son. This new king lasted only nine months before being murdered in a conspiracy. And Nabonidus seized the throne in 556. Now, we have mentioned Nabonidus, before from the so called Nabonidus Chronicle. He appears to have been a competent general but a lousy politician, and he really, really ticked off the powerful priests of Babylon. Nabonidus appears to have been devoted to the Akkadian moon god Sin, and this was instead of the traditional Babylonian god Marduk. And then, for some unknown reason, soon after his accession, Nabonidus left Babylon. And he spent a decade at the Arabian oasis town of Tiama until 543 BC. And he delegated rule of Babylon to his son, Belshazzar. Now, this was another source of irritation to the priests because some of the festivals of Marduk required the king in attendance to perform some of the rituals. And in the absence of the king, all of this basically came to a halt for a decade. Belshazzar himself is best known for the story of the writing in the wall from the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. In the book, Belshazzar has a feast, some writing appears on the wall, and nobody understands what it means until Daniel interprets this to say that God had numbered the days of his kingdom, he had been weighed and found wanting, and that his kingdom would be given to the Medes and the Persians. Now, the details of the story do not comport to historical fact And these were likely assembled later, given that Belshazzar was not the king, he was only the crown prince, and the Persian conquering the kingdom was Cyrus, not Darius. But, as I said, by 543, Nabonidus was back in Babylon. And whether it was because of the rising threat of Cyrus, we do not know. And by 540 BC, the war had started. Cyrus first captured Elam and its capital Susa. And in October 539, the decisive battle of Opus was fought north of Babylon. The result was a rout. And after the battle, Belshazzar disappears in the historical record, so it's possible that he was killed in this battle. Soon after the victory, Cyrus's troops entered Babylon without much resistance and captured Nabonidus. Nabonidus himself appears to have been spared. In the Cyrus Cylinder Cyrus now proclaims himself king of Babylon king of Sumer and Akkad king of the four corners of the world He quickly won over the Babylonian priests by portraying by portraying Nabonidus as impious and then he also dedicated this inscription to the Babylonian god Marduk and then in contrast to Nebuchadnezzar who has been damned by the Old Testament for destroying Jerusalem This is when Cyrus wins himself his Messiah status in the Old Testament because he ended the Babylonian captivity of the Jews. He allowed them to return home and he appears to have freed a number of peoples who Nebuchadnezzar had forcibly deported to Babylon. Once the Jews returned back to Jerusalem, the construction of the second temple soon commenced. And now, at this point, Cyrus ruled the largest empire the world had ever seen. It stretched from Asia Minor to the Indus, where once there were four empires in the Near East maintaining the balance of power. There was now the giant Persian behemoth and Egypt, which was basically waiting for its fate to be decided. You no longer had a bunch of squabbling kingdoms fighting each other. And basically, you had the king's peace. As a state builder, Cyrus ranks close to the top of the list of such rulers. And he probably deserves a higher spot than the young Macedonian who would basically tear his accomplishments down. Because what Cyrus did was not just conquest, he also established a stable system of administration. And this would survive his death, and it would survive the tumult that followed the death of his two sons. Now, as I said, this empire stretched all the way from Asia Minor to the Indus. Unfortunately, we know very little of Achaemenid activities in the east. What we do know about the emperors comes in the context of their relations with the Greeks or the Lydians or the Egyptians or the Babylonians. For whatever reason, we just don't have as many written records of what the kings were up to in the eastern campaigns. And this is something that affects the next part of the story, the death of Cyrus. According to Babylonian records, Cyrus the Great was dead by 530 BC and he appears to have died in a campaign against tribes in the steppes. Herodotus gives us a colorful story of his death at the hands of the Scythian queen, Tomyris, which starts with Cyrus tricking and killing her son in battle, and then in turn being killed by the furious queen. Now this version is questioned because Herodotus himself admits that this was just one of the versions he heard. Remember, he had the moniker Father of Lies. But, as I said, by 530 BC, Cyrus was dead. Now, if his remains were recovered by the Persians, they may have been interred at Pasargade, where a limestone tomb is believed to be his, and that tomb still exists. According to Plutarch, the epitaph once read, O man, whoever you are and wherever you come from, for I know you will come. I am Cyrus, who won the Persians their empire. Do not therefore begrudge me this bit of earth that covers my bones. On the death of Cyrus, he would be succeeded as emperor by his son, Cambyses II, and he had a second son, bardaya who was appointed as satrap in the east. But with the death of Cyrus, we will wrap up this season of episodes on the birth of Western coinage. Now, there's a lot more, obviously, in the Achaemenid story. We have left them with Egypt still independent and the wars with Greece that will soon begin. However, as I indicated in episode 1, I intend to jump about a bit in seasons, from story to story. Otherwise, I risk getting stuck in a timeline rabbit hole, and we will not leave ancient Greece for years to come. So the next episode will start a new season, and we are going to jump ahead a couple of centuries. Now, the subject matter of this season was suggested by my friend Will Stearns, so a shout-out to Will over here. And what we will cover are the decades following the death of Alexander the Great, as his generals fought over the empire he had built after conquering the one built by Cyrus and then later Darius. Now, this will be a longer season, a lot more protagonists, and we actually have a lot more sources, and we will have a lot more coins. The wars of the successors will cover about 40 years by themselves, but you cannot get Alexander in Babylon without explaining how he got there. So we'll also have episodes going back in time covering Alexander and you can't really explain Alexander without explaining his father, Philip. And this season we'll also have this podcast's first movie review for historical accuracy. We will take a look at Oliver Stone's Alexander. I'm going to do my best to continue having an episode every week, but once in a while... It may be every two weeks, depending on how much research I need to do for each particular episode. So, with that, we'll see you soon for Season 3, The Wars of the Successors, and Episode 3.1, The King is Dead. If you like this episode, please give this podcast a five-star review on iTunes or the podcatcher from where you access this podcast. This is a new podcast and good reviews are essential in getting the word out. Thank you for your support.